going to come and we're now going to read God's Word together. We read, first of all, from the book of Deuteronomy. But let's pray before we do that. Father, as we come to Your Word, Your Word that is timeless, Your Word that is for our broken lives and our broken land, we ask that You would speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Reading from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6 and verses 4 to 12, these words words that are at the heart of our faith and also of the Jewish faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts Impress them in your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When the Lord brings you into the land He swore to our fathers, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to give you, a land with large flourishing cities that you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things that you did not provide, wells that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. When you eat and be satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Amen. And then we read from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. We've been working through this. We're reading from chapter 8 this morning and these words. Paul writes to the Corinthians, Now about food that is sacrificed to idols, we know that all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in all the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or earth, indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things came and through whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and, and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificed food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, 
If what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. Amen. And thanks be to God for His Word. We've been working through the letter to the Corinthians, um, and if you haven't done so, I, I would invite you to, to read it through in your own time, because sometimes when we take the, the little sections on their own, we, we miss the big theme. And the big theme of Corinthians is that Paul is taking this young church, people who are working out what it means to be Christians in the world, people who are, they've not got any rule book here because this is the first generation of Christians. They can't say, well, this is the way we've always done things. They're, they're trying to work it out. And as he's teaching them, he's bringing them back all the time to the story of the cross, to the story of what Jesus has done. You see, for a lot of the Corinthians, when they don't have that, they're taking their values, they're taking what's important to them from the world around them. I am very much aware that even Christians today spend more time watching television than reading their Bibles. And you know what that does? It means that when we start to think, our thoughts are shaped more by the people we're speaking to than, to, than by the, the Word of God. It's one of the reasons why I, I really struggle with the fact that our Christian teaching for many of us is, is 20 minutes a few weeks of the year. And yet, the pressures of the things that are not Christian teaching, that are shaping our minds and our behaviors, are all around us 24-7. And so, we need to steep ourselves in the Word of God. And what Paul is doing as he's doing this is, is, is very clear that he's quite clear that I'm not just teaching theology. This is what all sermons should be doing. I'm not just teaching theology, so here's some truths that you need to believe intellectually. On you go, you believe those things now. Nor are we coming that we can believe these things so that we can worship God in the right way in church and, and do church the right way. They're actually given to us that they would shape the whole of life. And that's what Paul is saying in this letter. This story of Jesus shapes everything about who you are. When we think about Jesus and what He's done for us, but when we also think about Jesus who came, the most important person in all the universe, the most innocent person, and yet He chose to give up, to sacrifice Himself in love. Sometimes we look for big things and strong things and successful things, and here is this upside-down world of the cross that says the whole of the universe is changed in an act where the weak, strong become weak, where the powerful becomes despised, where the things that we used to think are something are made nothing. And that's the same, Paul says, my, my preaching isn't much good, I'm not very eloquent, but that doesn't matter, because God uses the weak to bring down and to change the universe. And that's exactly what happened, this tiny little church, these tiny little groups in the ancient world with all the power of the Roman Empire, and yet they changed the world forever to the world it is even today. We saw last week, um, the last couple of weeks, in chapters um, 6 and 7, how Paul was taking one aspect of our human lives, which is our, our sexual lives, our marriage patterns, how we behave with our bodies, and saying how Christ changes that. Not just changes it and gives you a set of rules. Sometimes we reduce it to that, but changes you in the whole idea that your body belongs to the Lord Jesus who gave Himself for you. And just that changing 
your whole thinking. And now Paul comes to a problem that in one sense, we might say, well, it's not really a problem today. How do you live in a pagan city which is full of pagan shrines and idols? What do you do with the food? And we'll talk about that later that comes from these sources. Now, we might say this is not a problem today, so let's skip over chapter 8 and 9 and 10. But I want to say, actually, it, it is because what Paul is doing here is taking the gospel and applying it to what's right and wrong in that context. And it teaches us as we do that to think about our day where we live in a world that is very, very different from our Christian beliefs, our, our Christian outlook. And we have to work out how to live in that place. How do we be Jesus people in the place that we are? Well, the city in Paul's day was literally a place where there was a whole number of gods. And really, we find this very difficult to get our heads into. Um, th this is one of the temples that was uncovered when, the, un when the, un the archaeology in Pompeii, the city that was buried by Vesuvius. And what they found in Pompeii was temples absolutely everywhere. You went down the center street, you weren't looking at sort of, uh, you know, boots and... Uh, 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 Wilco, I was going to say, but we don't have that now. But you weren't looking at these places or saying, oh, there's a lot of bookie shops or whatever else it was. You literally would have been looking in the center of Motherwell at temples. And in just in the center of, of, of Pompeii, there are temples to Apollo, Jupiter, the gods of the city, the emperor of Aspasian, Isis, the emperor Augustus, Minerva, Hercules, Venus, Athena, Diana, Zeus, and Juno. That's just a few. So, you get this idea that the Roman world is a world that's absolutely full everywhere you go of these places. And it wasn't just in, in the sort of religious buildings. It was everywhere. If there was games, sporting events, which were very, very popular, they were always in the honor of the gods. And there would be some religious aspect at the beginning of the games. Sports, the same. If you were joined a trade guild, because that was your profession, you would find that it was connected with its patron god and the sacrifices to that god. If you went to a public celebration or an event, there you would find it was all being done in the presence of the gods. If you got involved in civic office, maybe sitting on the council or being in charge of something, it would all be connected with the city's pagan religions and everything that was involved in it. It pervaded the entire part of your life. In fact, in Pompeii they found which was probably the case in all Roman towns, that in the houses there were little shrines, little alcoves, where simple people in their own house would have little statues of the different gods that they were looking to protect their household. So, this was absolutely everywhere that you went. Every civil event, here's the emperor himself sacrificing in the temple the emperor himself being a priest as well as seen as a god. Or if you join the Roman army, the Roman army marches behind those, those standards, but those standards were dedicated to some god or other, and there would be all the religious elements of that at all. How was a Christian to live in a world so full of gods? In the book of Thessalonians, Paul had written to the Thessalonians, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, in one sense, that's a belief statement. You used to believe that there were lots of gods, 
now that you know that there is only one God and one Lord Jesus Christ. But what does that mean in how you live? How you relate to a world that is so steeped in paganism. It can't just be a religious thing. It's not just that you say, well, I don't go to the temple of Zeus anymore on Sundays. I go to church as if it was just a straight choice because those gods are absolutely everywhere. And if you withdraw from them, it's going to have major, major consequences. How are you going to carry out your business if the trade guild is associated with paganism? How are you going to run for civic office? And we know that at least one of the Corinthians was probably a, a quite influential person, a guy called Erastus, in, and he was a Christian in the city of Corinth. How are you going to do that if it's all dedicated to the gods? How are you going to do something where you're supposed to be a good citizen of Rome if being a good citizen of Rome means that you take your sacrifice to the temple of the emperor and say, hey, this is what we do here? How are you going to live? What does it mean to have the whole gospel for the whole life? Remember last week I, I spoke about the hokey-cokey. And we can do the one arm in, one arm out, one arm in, Sunday morning, shake it all about. But the final verse is the whole self in, the whole self out, the whole self in. Maybe don't shake it all about, but that whole idea. And that's really what so much of the Bible's about. How do you live the whole of your life? Deuteronomy that we read for the Jewish people says, starts off with a theological statement. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And then it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And he goes on to say that means keeping his commandments, but it means keeping his commandments with your children from when you get up to when you go to bed, you put them on your doorposts, you, you put them where, you, where you're working. You know, and that's not just about sticking Bible verses everywhere. It's about that sense of this that we believe changing the whole of our lives. It's why to be a Jew wasn't just to be, to be a religious Jew. It, it, it was going to be who you were. And Jews living in the ancient world as in the world today, lived distinctively in so many ways because it was all of their life that was about that. Hearts and homes. And the Old Testament, if you read the book of Leviticus, it starts to touch on, on trade, on, on weights and measurements, on, on, on social justice, on the environment, on the whole of life. Now, for the Corinthians, there were some very practical problems. Let me show you just how deep it was when I put it this way. When the pagans took their animals to the temple and they had them sacrificed there, they weren't stupid. You know, a sheep or a goat or a cow that you've taken to the temple is actually quite valuable and it's full of meat and you don't just want to hand it over, have a sacrifice and then go home. That's really expensive. So, what did they do? Well, they didn't just burn the thing up and then waste it. They cooked it in the temple. The temple functioned as an abattoir. Sliced the thing up, cooked the steaks, and there was lots of food there. And so, the Romans would go up to the temple and they would eat in the temple. I, I, I was struck that in, in Glasgow, there's a few church buildings that have become uh, places that you go to eat. Mind you, this church building feeds you quite a lot of the time and 
a lunch after church or whatever else it is. But that's what you went to, to the temple often to do. Um, and in fact, almost in, in the ancient cities, all of the meat that was being prepared and cooked might be going through the temple. So here's the question. I'm a Christian. Is it all right if I go to the temple with my sheep and make my sacrifice to Zeus? Okay, probably not. But what if my family is having a special do and they've taken a sheep up and sacrificing and they're having a meal? Can I go? And it got worse than that because what people did is they sent out invites. This is a, 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 an invite that is sent out inviting folk to a social event. It says, Heracles asks you to dine in a room at the te sleep, temple of Asclepius at the banquet of the Lord Serapis. That's a god tomorrow at 11 o'clock. Please come. You know, I know Christian families have often had issues with what do we do if the kids are invited to a, fam a party on a Sunday morning? Can they go? Can they not go? Well, here's an even bigger one. What if they're invited to a party in a pagan temple? You can see all the questions that are here. All the meat is a problem. And in fact, it's even worse than that. Because what did they do with the meat that was left over at the temple? They took it down to the market and it was sold. So if you go to Tesco and you buy meat, maybe, probably, it's come from the temple of Zeus and it was offered to him. Can you eat that? Questions. It's one of the reasons why a lot of Jewish folk in the ancient world went beyond the Jewish laws. They just didn't eat meat. You remember the book of Daniel? Book of Daniel, Daniel, when he's in Persia, just says, look, give me vegetables. And it's probably not because of the, they're not kosher, the meat. It's probably because the meat has been sacrificed to gods. Where do you draw the line? What is a Christian to do? And the well, more well-connected you are, the richer you are, the more of these invitations that you're going to get, and probably the more meat you could afford to eat, and the more it's expected of you, and the more your social connections require this to do your business. So, you've got more, more and more problems. Now, Paul has obviously got a letter from the Corinthians, which is struggling with this. Where do we draw the line? And one of the arguments they seem to be using is this. Well, look, we've, we've got this knowledge. We've got this knowledge. And the knowledge tells us that idols are really, they don't exist. There's only one God. So Zeus and Heracles and, and all these other things, they're just nothing. You can see where that argument's going, can't you? So I could eat the meat and it's fine because it's not really been sacrificed to a God because there aren't any other gods. And after all, God made the meat. And I could go up to the temple for a bit of a party, and it's fine because I'm not really worshiping that other God. It's just a block of wood. You can see where that argument's going, can't you? Now, here's the thing Paul says of this knowledge, you know, you're absolutely right. There is only one God, there is only one Lord, and he identifies that with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is right. And in fact, when, when Paul speaks here, he's, uh, he, he's, he's affirming almost that Jewish monotheism that he, he almost quotes from that Shema that we read from, from Deuteronomy, the Lord is one, the Lord, the, Lord, the Lord is one. He says, there is one God and one Lord. This is what we find in Jesus. And so you're completely right when you say that these, 
these are, these are nothing. And therefore, yes, you can go and eat the meat, and there's not really a problem. And you'll talk about later that all these things, if you, if you just say, God gave me it, just, just fine. But here's the next thing he says. This is key. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. What's the problem here? Some of the Christians are obviously thinking, I can go and buy the meat and eat the meat, and it's not a problem. Maybe I've got a limit. I'm not going to go to the temple and worship, but you know, the rest of it's fine. I, I don't actually believe this stuff. I'm not actually saying I believe this stuff. The meat's not going to do me any harm because Zeus isn't going to pox me through it because he doesn't exist. It's only one God. And Paul is saying, you're right. You're absolutely right. You are free. It's not going to do you any harm. Completely right. But you have to bear something else in mind. And he talks here about weaker brethren, weaker sisters with troubled consciences. What is this? This is probably people who have been pagans. They've been involved in the temple worship quite heavily. And for them, that mindset that there's only one God isn't something that's really grasped them. And so, they are seeing other gods, other lords, other ways as they do these things, and they are tempted simply to slip back into a mindset of fitting in and worshiping Zeus and worshiping Athena, maybe worshiping Jesus as just another God among all the gods and all the rest of it. And what Paul is saying is it will not be sufficient for you to say, well, I believe it's okay, so I'm off doing it. You have to also think not just about knowledge, what's right and what's wrong, what you believe, but you actually have to think about the impact it's having on your fellow brothers and sisters. We might take a, an obvious example that you might well say, I'm free to drink alcohol. I haven't got a problem with that. Christians can drink alcohol. But if you were with a group of people where that was going to be a real problem for somebody, what should you do? Should you say, well, I'm free to drink alcohol. That's fine. Of course not. Wouldn't be loving, would it? You might well lead somebody who struggles with that into a place that is not healthy. And so, this is what Paul is saying here. Yeah, you can have knowledge, but what, do you have love? And we can all think of, of examples of that with, with, with Christians and sometimes ourselves where people are having an argument and they're saying all the right things and all the theology in the world, and they're right. But how are they saying it? And are they looking around? And what's the impact that that's having on other people? We speak the truth, but what does Paul say elsewhere? We speak the truth. The Ephesians this comes from, we speak the truth in love, in love. That must be part of how we look at things as we work out what we are to do. Yeah, we're free to eat the meat, but you can't just be somebody who goes around and says, well, I've got my rights and I can do what I want. It's the same when Paul talked about, about sex in chapter 6. He said, look, okay, you say, I can do anything I want. I'm free. Yeah, but even if that's true, even where that's true, not everything is helpful. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. And if it causes my brother or sister to stumble, then I won't do it, says Paul. Even if it causes a brother or sister to fall into sin, I would never give any, need any meat again. Where's Paul getting this from? Well, he's getting this from 
the story of Jesus. We're back to the first four chapters. Yes, Jesus is Lord. Yes, there are no other gods. Yes, this is all true. But let's stop and think about what Jesus did, because Jesus didn't come and say, here's the truth, here's my rights, I'm going to do my thing. Jesus came and laid down His rights in love. He didn't deserve to die. He had a right to live. And so, as Christians who follow Him, it's not just that we believe things about Jesus, it's that we are shaped by what Jesus did. Our salvation isn't just about knowledge and freedom. It's also about understanding that Jesus came in love. He gave up everything for us. So, as we live together, we give up everything for each other. And yet, so often is it not the case that what we do is we, we think about our rights. Well, we are called to build each other up. We are called to pray for each other, to encourage each other, to share with each other. Yes, your property is yours. That is a right. But how are we called to use it? in love. This is the challenge that is offered in this chapter. And Paul will, will go on in chapter 9, which we're not going to look at. We'll skip to chapter 10 next week. But what, what he uses in chapter 9 is a personal example. He says, look, <clears throat> I've got a right. This is the controversial one for ministers. He says, I've got a right to get paid. I come and I work and uh, <clears throat> I've got a right, he says, to, 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 you know, to, to get paid for my preaching and my, my traveling, and you Christians should share with me and, and make sure I've got as much as, as, as you've got, and that's how it should be. That's my right. And he says, in fact, he says, Peter, who also travels around, he exercises that right. Peter goes around, and he expects the churches to you know, to feed him and clothe him and, and look after him so that he doesn't work. He doesn't run back to, to Galilee and do a big bit of fishing to make some money. He, he, he wanders around. But Paul says, when I came to Corinth, I didn't use that right. And I didn't use that right, I think partly because he was a bit afraid because of some rich people in the Corinthian church that he'd, he looked like he was really just their little puppet that, you know, they'd hired him. And so, what did Paul do when he came to Corinth? He worked with his hands. He went down and he took his leather tools out, and he, he earned his own living, and he said no to receiving a stipend, as it were. He said, no, I'll, I'll, by the way, I'm not making the offer. Um, he said, no, I'm, I'm not going to take a salary from the church. I, I, I'm going to work for myself. And what he says in chapter 9, he says, I had the right to expect you to pay me, but I chose not to use that right for the sake of the gospel. Now, what does that mean for us today? It means that as we think about what's right and wrong and what we should do and what we shouldn't do, it's not just about working out where the lines are. It's also working out what does it mean to live holy for Jesus. You know, some people want to know what the ethical answer to a question is. <laughs> and if I can work out what's expected of a Christian, how much should I give, how much should I pray, um, how, how, what, what am I not allowed to do as a Christian with my body or sexually or in any other way, what can I do? But what that's basically saying is this, I'll work out how little 
I should do that's enough. You know, when people say to me, how much should I give? I'm, I'm aware of what they're actually saying is, how little should I give? And have crossed the threshold of enough. And what, 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 what this is saying to us is actually think of this a different way. Yes, there are some things that are wrong. Absolutely. And we shouldn't be doing those things. But that doesn't mean all the things that are okay, we should just do. Because we have to ask, what does it mean to live 100% for Jesus in this place? What does He want me to do? How do I serve Him the most and not the minimum? How do I have a following of God that doesn't just say, well, I go to church and I believe things and I, I live a good life and I, I have ethics in my business and I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't swear because that's wrong and I, I, I give something to the church and that's me fine. How do we have a life where we actually say, I have lived my life and sought to live my life as Christ sought to live His life for me? In love, in sacrifice, and in fullness. And that is the essence of Christianity where we move away from ethics, there is a right and a wrong, to a place of full living. It's like, you know, if you walk down, or if you're driving, okay, and what's the speed limit? What's the speed limit on your road? Is it 20? Or is it 30? People are having an argument just now about whether it should be 20, aren't they? But you know, my problem with that is that very often folks say, well, you know, we go at 30 on our road. What's the speed limit? I'll drive at the speed limit. Now, you should not, as a Christian, ever drive over the speed limit. We do, but we shouldn't. But does that mean you should drive at the speed limit? No, absolutely not. You should drive in the most considerate way that you can. You should be thinking about others. You should be thinking about the dangers. You should drive in a place that is good. And it's the same with our ethics. There are things that are wrong, that are out of limits, but actually that's not where we're called to live, just avoiding the bad things. We're called to live as Jesus lived, our whole life following the one who gave His whole self for us. And that is Christian living, 24-7, in all of life, in all of the time. And as I said before, the wonderful thing is that as we follow the one who gave His whole life for us at the cross, we're aware we don't live up to that, but that's all right as well because we come to the cross. And what is the cross? Not the place that there is always forgiveness and love and acceptance by the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for us that we might live our best lives for God. Amen.